If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. As we continue our study in this, through this incredible Gospel, we're approaching two years that we spent in Luke, and uh, look forward to another five or six more. Um, I kid, or do I? We're going to be in verses 9 through 14 this morning. 9 through 14. Jack served us well last week in verses 1 through 8 in this chapter. We're going to camp out in another related parable on prayer, one that is surely familiar to you. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 18, starting verse 9. Holy Spirit says, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. This is a familiar story to you, yes? Uh, How many times have you read this parable, heard it preached, or taught, or referenced? This isn't a bad thing, right? But familiarity can tend to make us miss the force that is intended in a parable like this. It's like the difference between knowing you're walking into a surprise party versus being totally unaware and thus being able to be taken aback. On top of that, we're far removed contextually from this, right? We don't have people walking around called Pharisees, nor do we have the same kind of tax collector that appears in this story, nor do we frequently head to a temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem for prayer. What's more, we forget who the audience is supposed to be. Jesus doesn't tell us who the audience is, but Luke does, doesn't he? Who is the audience? Those who trust in their own righteousness and treat others with contempt. Who's in danger of that? Perhaps an updated version of the parable is in order. Should we try that? Let's try that. Here goes. Chris and Carl went to church one morning. Chris knew his way around since he'd been brought up in the church. He knew how the service would go. He knew how to quickly find the scripture that was going to be preached on. He even knew all the songs. He walked in, he headed to the front row and and sat down where everyone could see him. Then he bowed his head and shut his eyes, assuming the posture that he had always seen his dad and granddad pray in growing up, one that seemed particularly holy and reverent. Everyone in the church knew Chris. He was a longtime church member. He grew up going to Sunday school. He'd served on various committees. Even as an adult, he had an excellent Sunday school attendance record. In fact, sometimes he taught Sunday school. 
carried a large, well-worn Bible, which was all marked up with various notes and underlines, assorted colors of highlights that he had done over the years. Further, he was almost always in church. He was respected in the community. He was a philanthropist and a businessman. He was quick to open the checkbook and write a check when he heard of some need. He was involved in civic clubs and local government. He could be seen frequently doing community service projects. He was a faithful and dutiful husband. He never drank or touched any other substance of any kind. He was an ideal neighbor who anyone would love to live next to. As Chris finished thanking God for his resume and morality, he opened his eyes, and in his peripheral vision, he caught a glimpse of someone sneaking in the back of the church and sitting quietly in the most remote and hidden part of the sanctuary. Chris recognized the figure, but he thought that it was surely not who he thought it was. As he looked over, it was confirmed that it really was him. Oh no, he thought. It's Carl. What is he doing here? He has no right to be here. What a hypocrite. What Chris didn't know is Carl was thinking the exact same thing about himself. What right do I have to be in church, thought Carl. I haven't been in years. I, I feel uncomfortable, and I fully expect someone to come and tell me that I should leave and I don't belong here. He wasn't sure what he was supposed to do in terms of ritual. Who was it that crossed themselves again? He didn't know what the service was going to be like. He didn't know a single song, and he thought he may have owned a Bible at one time, but now he doesn't have any idea where it might be. Carl sank down as far as he could go in the pew, and he hoped against hope that no one would notice him. See, Carl was not a religious person. In fact, his reputation was that he was a troublemaker. No one liked Carl. No one respected Carl. And almost everyone in town knew who he was, and they avoided him. If there was trouble with the police in the neighborhood, you could pretty much bet that Carl was involved somehow. Nicotine stained his fingers, and there was a distinct smell of beer on his breath. In fact, he'd been in the bar down the road until closing time just the night before. Why in the world did he come to church? Was it because of the fight he had with his mother when she found out that he had pawned some of her jewelry? Was it because of the fight with his girlfriend the night before who caught him cheating and subsequently threw him out of the house? Maybe. He did try unsuccessfully to drown his sorrows at the local pub to no avail. Instead, he felt overcome with how much of a mess he had made of his life and how dirty he was and how he'd ruined everything. And it was no one's fault but his. He knew he was the only one to blame. As he thought about his desperate state, he sunk down into the cushion of the pew so far that he was liable to become one with it. Tears began to well up in his eyes. His cheeks turned red. A lump came to his throat. He gripped the bottom of the pew as hard as he could, letting out a sigh. Oh, God he said into his clenched fist, Oh God. I tell you, it was Carl who went home a believer that day and not Chris. Now I wonder, do you now feel some surprise with this parable? We mentioned the uniqueness of the note about the audience. Who is it to? The crowds? The Pharisees? The disciples? It's those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treat others with contempt. Who is it to then? It's to us, isn't it? It's to me. It's to you. Charles Spurgeon said to his church once, self-righteousness is born with us, and there is perhaps no sin which has so much vitality in it as the sin of righteous self. My dear hearers, I cannot compliment you by imagining that all of you have been delivered from the great delusion of trusting in yourselves. The godly, those who are righteous through faith in Christ, still have to mourn that this infirmity 
clings to them. Jesus tells us there are two characters in the story, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And they both went up, it says, literally, the temple was on a hill, went up to pray, and at the end of the story, they both went down from the temple to their respective homes, but only one of them was justified. And the big lesson is this, Jesus tells us at the end, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. These are the two postures with which one will approach God, which will flow out to how one views and treats people. And we see each posture in turn, don't we? So let's take them in turn. The first one, the one who exalts himself, is pictured in the Pharisee. Now, we've mentioned before, but it bears repeating, that the way in which we view Pharisees would not be the view that Jesus' original audience would share. We see that there's a Pharisee in the story, and we automatically, what? <coughs> we don't like him. We apply all sorts of baggage to him. We see the Pharisees as villainous, ravaging wolves, these whitewashed tombs who are out to get Jesus. But they were not seen like that by the majority of Jesus' audience. They were seen as paragons of virtue. They were the most respected and religious and moral people in the nation. People looked up to them, and they sought them and viewed them as the pinnacle of piety. So the original hearers would have heard the contents of the Pharisees' prayer as sincere and true. Like we read it, and we think his voice took on this braggadocious tone, right? Like he's Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Can you tell I have a lot of daughters? Singing about how his giant biceps and how he eats five dozen eggs a day. But this Pharisee in the parable would have been taken as hearing the prayer of a well-respected and religious man who really didn't extort. He really didn't cheat. He really was moral. He, he really did his religious duty above and beyond what was required. Now, the problem, of course, is that his posture is one of a self-justifier. He's trusting in himself and his abilities to be right before God. He feels he's earned it. And the thing about self-justification is we all do it. You do it. I do it. Your family does it. Your neighbor does it. Your co-workers do it. And one of the reasons it, it's so relevant for us is that people, us, who are very religious, are perhaps in more danger of adopting the attitude than others. See, in human, if human history, as C.S. Lewis quipped, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy, then history is the long, terrible story of man trying to just, justify himself apart from the mercy and grace of God. The characteristics of the Pharisees' self-justifications are ones we practice in our hearts, seemingly without thinking. And we would be mistaken to miss how insidious this sin of pride and self-justification is. This is our default mode. The Pharisee begins by saying the things he doesn't do. You notice that? And his approach to that is to compare himself to others who do those things that he abstains from. I'm not like people who extort. I'm not like people who are unjust. I'm not like people who commit adultery. In other words, his, he compares himself to the worst people he knows. 
and in comparing himself to them, he comes out on top. And isn't that why we compare ourselves to people? We compare ourselves to people so that we come out looking better. Because we only compare ourselves to people who we perceive to be worse sinners than we are. Is that true? And if that's the case, we'll always come out on top. Because we will always be able to find someone who we perceive as less morally scrupulous than we are. Like, we know we're sinners. Yes, you know you're a sinner. But if we could say, yeah, I may sin in this way, but at least I don't sin in that way. That's the really bad stuff right there. It's why we hold on to unforgiveness and grudges. Because we feel that those other people are less deserving of forgiveness and mercy and grace than we are. They're simply bigger, less deserving sinners than we are. I should get forgiveness, and they should not. Isn't that why we like gossip so much? As long as we can put the attention on someone who we think did something I would never do, then we feel better about our own morality and goodness. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe they would do that? I wouldn't do anything like that. And then we go home feeling, what? (laughs) Justified. In our stories, we are always the heroes and others the villains. Like the Pharisee, we could be more acquainted with other people's sin than we are our own sin. It could be said of this Pharisee, what was said of Judge Claude Frollo from Hunchback of Notre Dame, Judge Claude Frollo longed to purge the world of vice and sin, and he saw corruption everywhere except within. So insidious is this. Do you guys understand how insidious this is? We could look at this very parable and say, thank God I'm not like this Pharisee. He's so arrogant, self-congratulating. I'm glad I don't pray like he does. We could be Pharisees about Pharisees. We could be self-righteous about self-righteousness. Like sometimes you'll hear someone say they don't go to church because church is full of hypocrites and self-righteous people. It's like, first of all, how would you know you haven't been in years? And second, you're doing the very thing you accuse others of doing. You're being self-righteous about people you perceive to be self-righteous. You're assuming that other people are hypocrites, but you're always consistent in your deeds and your heart motivations. Do you guys see how insidious and easy this is? If we play the game of comparisons, we will always come out on top because our hearts are bent in on themselves, and we will think we're the best, most sincere, most often correct person in the whole world. Honestly, do you know? Do you know anybody who is more right more often than you are? Do you? You know anyone, right? Do you know anyone who has good motives more often than you do? Okay, let's take a test, a quick test, okay? Quickly think of the first, the, the, I want you to think of the worst sinner you know. You got it? Who popped into your head? If the first person that came to your mind wasn't you, you're self-righteous. And you don't know your heart very well. You know, I was, I was reflecting on this and, uh, uh, and on this aspect of the text in particular. And you know what came to my mind? Was how every generation seems to think they're the best one. Have you ever thought about that? Every generation thinks they're the greatest generation and that the generation ahead of them is grumpy and out of touch and the generations that come behind them are lazy, ungrateful, and entitled. 
you're being a Pharisee here. And now I'm being a Pharisee about your Pharisaism. You see how this works? So you do it, I do it. When Gen Z grows up, they're going to do it too, right? And you know there's a name for this. It's called the kids these days effect. And studies have revealed that people have been thinking that their generation is the greatest and the other generations aren't as good, dating back to the 400s BC. It's kind of like you hear people will often say, no one wants to work anymore. You know, studies have found that people have been saying that almost exact phrase since the 1800s. Why do we do that kind of stuff? It's because we're predisposed to think we're awesome. Right? And we are more awesome when we compare ourselves to others that we think aren't as awesome as we are. You know, but here's the thing, right? Accurate self knowledge does not come from comparing yourselves to others. Accurate self knowledge does not come from comparing yourselves to others. What the Pharisees needed, what we need, is accurate knowledge of ourselves and our state before God. Let's illustrate it in another way. Imagine you go to the doctor for your annual checkup, okay? You go, you sit in the waiting room, you observe all the other people there. You you get called back. You put on that robe that's made out of recycled paper mache. You try to tie it in the back, but let's be honest, it ain't happening. Doctor comes in. Before he says anything, You say, doctor, I feel great. I'm in good shape. I eat well. I take my vitamins. I abstain from too much alcohol. And quite frankly, I don't even need to be here right now. I'm in tip-top shape. Plus, I saw some of the other patients in the waiting room. And I got to tell you, doc, I'm doing way better than they are. After your speech is done, doctor listens to your heart and your lungs. He gets the chart with your blood pressure and cholesterol. And after a minute, he goes, hmm. Then he looks a little bit more and he says, Interesting. Then he flips the page and he looks a little more and says, oh my. And you say, it sounds like you're very impressed with my health, doc. Finally, he says, you have high cholesterol, your blood pressure is through the roof, and you have diabetes. Now, in that case, your estimation of yourself did not matter, did it? Because you were in accounting for the unseen things below the surface. You needed an expert who could test what was really happening underneath to reveal to you the true state of your health. The Pharisee was estimating his external performance, his feelings, his judgments. But if he would look below the surface to what God sees, he would know that he was sick. How the Pharisee estimated himself as compared to other people did not, quite frankly, matter. What the Pharisee thought of himself did not matter in the, in the sense that his estimation is not the estimation that God goes by. Ronald Wallace said, The Pharisee had beautiful religious feelings when he went to the temple. He felt right with God and with life. So comforting were his religious feelings that he felt sure he was in the kingdom of God. His heart told him so, but his heart told him a lie. See, we say things like, I feel. Don't we say that all the time? I feel, I know in my heart. And we let those things be our guides and we let them be how we estimate our standing before God. But what we forget is our hearts are morons and our feelings often betray us. 
And isn't that why the sin of pride and comparison is so insidious? We all know, the Bible says, your heart is deceitful above all things. And we're like, yeah, maybe other people's hearts. Not mine. Yeah, yours. It's a dum-dum. What matters is not how you feel about your morality and your piety. What matters is not how righteous you think you are. What matters is not what other people think of you. What matters is not how much better you think you are than other people. Listen, my friends, what matters is how God estimates you. And when we stand before his judgment seat, what he will not say is let's compare you to other people. The person we should be comparing ourselves to is Jesus. You want to compare yourself to someone? Compare yourself to him. Now, how you doing in terms of righteousness? How you doing in terms of obedience and morality and doing the will of God and heart motivation? How you doing? But see, one of the Pharisees' biggest problems was that his was a righteousness that went outside in rather than inside out. His was, he was big on external performance. He was big on things people could see him do rather than on having a heart transformed that would then move out towards obedience. But the problem is that no one in the history of the universe has been saved by doing good deeds. No one has been transformed in the heart by starting with outward deeds and trying to move inward. Those who do such things end up as whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. Michael Reeves said it this way in his book, Evangelical Pharisees, we are too easily impressed by ourselves. The Pharisee certainly was, scrupulous in all the wrong ways. He did not know his own heart. He failed to see how deep God's scrutiny goes. He thought of righteousness as a mere matter of external performance and behavior. Judging by outward appearance, he could see and condemn the speck in his brother's eye, but was serenely uh, oblivious to the rot within his own soul. You know, the Pharisee was indeed very religious. He really did fast twice a week. You know, something the law never prescribed. The law said you only had to fast one day of a year for 24 hours, and that was all that was prescribed. He did it twice a week. He gave tithes, not only on his money, but this man went into his spice cabinet and was getting his spices out to tithe with that along with everything else he got. And these are all good things, right? Nearly everything he mentions, not being an extortioner is good, yes? Being just is good. Being faithful to one's spouse is good. Going above and beyond what the Bible prescribes is good. And that's the thing with this, right? It's great that he does and doesn't do what he lists, but the problem is, as we said, that he thinks these things will get him something before God. Like it will create some kind of obligation from God to let him into the kingdom. Like God the negotiator that we talked about a few weeks ago, the Pharisee thinks his deeds put him in God's favor and therefore puts God in his debt rather than vice versa. His was however, a religion of merely external performance. But we too need to be careful that ours isn't a religion of merely external performance. A kind of religion 
that wants to go up front to be seen like this Pharisee. Outward deeds divorced from a heart that has been transformed by God gets you nothing before him. This is the frightening thing about religion, isn't it? One could be very religious, very devout, truly, very moral, very respected, very nice, very successful, and still be far from God. Here's the scandal of all this, right? Hell is populated with people we suspect, serial killers, genocidal dictators, criminals and thieves and deviants, ardent atheists. And they're sitting next to people who are very well-respected men and women who went to church every Sunday. Right there in hell with them. Who taught Sunday school, sang in the choir, were deacons or pastors, knew their Bibles, were philanthropists, were generous, didn't commit adultery, were fair in business, but their religion amounted only to what they did and didn't do rather than crying out to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. They never truly cast themselves on mercy of the divine court and an atoning Christ because, well, they never really saw themselves as people in need of mercy. Or at least not as much mercy as other people they therefore never cried out to God for pardon. What we all need, as C.S. Lewis said, is to take the fancy dress off, to get rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy, and all of its posing and posturing to get rid of the silly nonsense about our own dignity which has made us restless and unhappy all of our lives, to be humble enough to admit we are sinners and mean it to be humble enough to admit we're helpless before a holy and just God with nothing to commend ourselves with. Before God, a religion of mere external morality and performance is like the emperor's new clothes. You guys remember that fable? Two weavers told the emperor they made him new clothes, but also told him that the outfit was invisible. So the emperor thinks he's wearing this colorful outfit. He struts around in the middle of the city like a peacock, thinking his clothes are super impressive, but in reality he's naked and he looks foolish. Those who think their external piety and morality will clothe them before a holy and just God who sees even to the motivation of their heart may strut around like peacocks, and they may even fool themselves and other people. But before God they're naked and they look foolish. Why? Because works that are done from a heart that has been transformed, from a heart that hasn't cried, has not done from a heart that has been transformed, from a heart that hasn't cried out in desperation for rescue, amount to nothing. You see, what else this kind of self-righteousness in comparison does? Do you see it? They make you look at others with contempt. Thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or what? even like this tax collector. Klein Snodgrass says this Pharisee, the error of the Pharisee is that he thinks he could be obedient to God and still have a disdain for people. What may have started as legitimate affirmation that he has kept the covenant has detoured into disdain and self 
congratulations. What the Pharisee didn't realize was that God does not accept deeds done from a heart that holds others in contempt. You mean to say that again? God does not accept deeds done from a heart that holds others in contempt. Del Ralph Davis says, if you are despising others, it is likely that you trust in your own righteousness, and when you do that, you almost must despise others because if they were equal to you, you cannot regard yourself as quite so righteous. Look at verse 11 again. Even the word that is translated this in this tax collector is a word that was lined with contempt and has negative connotation. He says, I'm glad I'm not like this one. His desperate need to self-justify has led him to compare himself to people who he thought weren't as good as him, which led him to contempt of fellow image bearers. My friend, you must see how dangerous this posture is and how we're all prone to it. For it's our default mode. If we incessantly compare ourselves to people, if we look at any person with contempt, God will reject all of the good we think we have to commend ourselves to him. If we look down on people, any people, we are setting ourselves up as better, which means we are failing to estimate ourselves properly. Think about this. The Pharisee knew his Bible which means he knew that the law could be summarized this way. Love God and what? Love your neighbor. Even if he was loving God through his deeds, which we know he was doing them for himself and not for God. But let's pretend he was loving God. With his contempt of others, he has failed to love his neighbor. For one cannot love and despise at the same time. You cannot look up at God while looking down at others. One cancels out the other. So who is this one, this other character? Who is this tax collector? Well, if the Pharisee was seen as the height of piety, the height of religion and societal respectability, then the tax collector was the opposite. Everyone hated him. I mean, I don't think we get the force of how much they are loathed. They were seen as traitors and liars. They were classified with murderers and robbers. The people were told it's okay to lie to them, and God doesn't mind. And they couldn't even testify in court. See, you know what happened was the oppressor, Rome, hired these local fellas to collect these taxes for them and said that whatever you collect over the percentage that Rome fixed, you could keep. So let's say Rome told the collectors they need to collect 10%. If the tax collector could extort 20%, they get to keep that extra 10%. And the people knew they were doing this, and they could do nothing about it. So everybody hated them. I think of Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. You remember what people thought of Scrooge, right? Everyone hated him. And this is what Dickens writes about what people thought of him. It said, nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, my dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such place of Scrooge. Even the blind man's dog appeared to know him. And when they saw him coming would tug their owners into doorways and up courts and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. 
Now, that's what people thought of tax collectors, but worse. And that's part of the shock we're supposed to feel in the story. Like first century people would have been floored to hear a story where the Pharisee and tax collector are in it, and it's the tax collector who's the protagonist. And how is he described? He stood far off. He wouldn't look to heaven. He beat his chest, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So whereas the Pharisee stood by himself at the front to be seen and to keep himself unstained from all the other sinners, the tax collector stood off because he didn't think he could get too near to the temple where the presence of God dwelt due to his unworthiness. The Pharisee thought his deeds allowed him to stroll right up to the front and lift his eyes to heaven, but not the tax collector. Now, did you notice, look again at your text. Did you notice the description of the Pharisee's posture is short, but his prayer is long? What about the tax collector? The description of his posture is long, but his prayer is short. He doesn't dare look up to heaven, for he feels he has no right to even look in heaven's direction. He beats his chest, which is a sign of anguish. One commentator said this, his heart in his chest was the source of all his evil thoughts, so he was beating it as evidence of his pain. It seems the tax collector knew what Jesus said was true. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, theft, false witness, and slander. See, whereas we culturally think our hearts should be our guides, he, he sees his heart as the problem. Whereas we may assume the posture of the Pharisee and think the problem is with people out there. Don't we do that? We do that all the time. Isn't that basically what politics is? Your party's the best one. You have the right motives. You want to save the country. The other party what? It doesn't even matter which one you're in. That's how you view the other side is trying to destroy us all, right? The problem is out there. That's what the Pharisee thinks. The tax collector sees the problem where? It's in here. The worst person he knows isn't someone else. It's him. The tax collector doesn't list any other person, does he? He doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, but do try to remember that there are other sinners, and some of them are way worse than I am. He doesn't compare himself to anyone else. He is concerned with his state, his spiritual health. He knows that he has nothing to commend himself to God with, which is why he doesn't list one single merit. He doesn't try to tip the scales to where he says, yes, I'm a sinner, but look, I do a lot of good stuff too, you know. This is how he regards himself, simply. A sinner. But that's not even strong enough, as the text really says. Literally, the Greek text says, not that he's a sinner, but that he's the sinner. That's how he regards himself. He's the sinner. He doesn't see himself as one sinner among a world of sinners. He sees himself as the sinner, as if there was only one. Or if there are more, he's the chief of them all. He thinks, surely no one is as big a sinner as I am. Surely no one has deserved fewer good things from God than me. Surely no one is as far outside the camp as I am. He's in basis standing before God on his own estimation or measurement, but by God's. 
He knows that if he is to be accepted by God at all, it will be based on mercy from God, not through his own attempts at goodness or morality or religiosity. He offers not only no comparison, he lists no good deeds, not even excuses for his sins. He sees himself as the sinner who needs mercy from the hand of a gracious God. In the mind of the Pharisee, his virtues are real and his sins are illusory. In the tax collector's mind, his sins are real and his virtues are illusory. The Pharisee tries to put God in his debt. The tax collector sees himself eternally in God's debt. The tax collector had the humility that God requires because it is humility that is able to properly understand and comes to grips with his true state before God. But listen, okay, humility by itself is not enough. You know this? You can recognize you're broken. You can understand you're a sinner and even glory in the fact that you're a mess and still not be saved. You know, some in our day, even professing Christians, talk more about how messed up they are than how glorious and merciful God is. They brag about how sinful they are. They're like the Pharisees except with their sinfulness. As if the level of authenticity with their brokenness merits them something before God. Humility isn't enough. You need mercy. You need mercy. Like our illustration earlier about the doctor's office, if you go in and you're given a diagnosis and you recognize you're sick and you walk out and you don't pick up your prescriptions or take them, you'll stay sick. Why? You can have the right diagnosis, but you aren't cured just by the diagnosis. Tax collector doesn't simply recognize that he's the worst sinner he knows. He asks God for mercy. But again, it's even more than that. Look again. I want you to make a note if you write in your Bible or your scripture journal. See that word merciful in verse 13. This word is only used twice in all of the New Testament and is different than the word typically translated mercy or merciful. Like, for example, later in this very chapter, Jesus will be passing by a blind beggar who cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a different word for mercy than what's used here. Why? Here's why. Because the word here translated merciful means something like propitiate me or grant atonement to me. This means that, strictly speaking, he's not asking for mercy, but atonement. Because he knows that forgiveness of his sin requires blood. He's asking God for an atoning sacrifice to be provided by him. Mercy, yes, but even more than that, mercy based on the death of another. James Edwards says, without merits to stand on, he must stand humbly before God without merits to speak for him. He must plead to God without merits to be rewarded. His only option is to plead to God for mercy. The tax collector is crying for something outside and beyond himself. He knows deep down that he is a sinner and that even if he had a thousand lifetimes to try, he could not justify himself. 
He knows how deep his sin runs. He knows that ultimately his sin is a cosmic treason deserving of the wrath of God. He knows that even if from that day forward he simply tried to be a good boy and be moral and well-respected and abstain from the bad things and pursue the good things, that this would not be enough to commend himself to God. He knows that if he did as we often do, as the Pharisee did, walk up to God with our arms full of all of our supposed goodness and deeds, God would still condemn him. He knows he needs what Martin Luther called alien righteousness. He needed God to be the one who gave him mercy and atonement and thus justification and righteousness and salvation. He needed it to be given. Don't you see? He needed to receive it, and he needed it given to him in spite of this, in spite of him. You know, do you know what's stunning about all this, what's most stunning about this? You know, the most stunning thing about this text is that God gave the tax collector what he asked for. He needed mercy, and that's what he got. He needed forgiveness, and that's what he got. He needed justification, and that's what he got. He needed righteousness, and that's what he got. And why? Because he got atonement. See, he knew his sins couldn't just go away. He knew God doesn't just wave a magical wand and say, oh, you seem contrite enough, here you go, sin, go poof. The depth of our sin and rebellion require death. They require wrath. We societally want to call sin dysfunction or mistakes or mess-ups, and we have reasons why we did them. But what they really are is cosmic treason against a holy God. He would be well within, we don't talk about our rights all the time, we'd be well within his right to crush us, and no one could cry foul. No one could say injustice. And this treason requires payment. It needs propitiation. It needs atonement. And that is exactly what Jesus provided on the cross. See, Jesus didn't just die for you, as we typically say. He died instead of you. In place of you. He absorbed the wrath of God aimed at you. You want justification? You can't earn it but he could give it to you. Here's the great exchange. Jesus took our, the punishment for our sin. He took the punishment for our rebellion and our treason and our hatred and our unforgiveness and our biases and our contempt of others and our lust and our greed and our idolatry. And he gives us his righteousness. His justification, his victory over sin and death, his inheritance. And therefore, if we cry out to God for mercy, we will be regarded by God as sons and daughters and welcomed in based on what he did, not on what we can do. Are you not astounded? Your ego has been taking a hit for the last 30 plus minutes. And that's because you need to know that you stand condemned before a holy God if you plead on your own merit. And I'm not going to give you rainbows and Skittles and have your blood on my hands. You need to know that you are lost on your own. And only when you come to grips with that can you be knocked flat on your behind by the beauty and grace and love of Christ. Don't you see what he did? 
Don't you see that like the Pharisee were prone to think we're pretty good, pretty righteous, pretty moral, and doggone it, God is lucky for me to be on his team. But don't you also see that like the tax collector, we can think we're too sinful, and too wretched, too unworthy to even gaze in heaven's direction. And indeed, we are. But God's love and mercy is greater than every sin. No matter how sinful we are, God's grace is greater still. Said Tim Keller, the gospel says, you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believed, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Jesus says that both men went home and only one was justified and it wasn't the one the audience expected. Jesus is showing them and us justification is not grounded in anything you can do or refrain from doing. Justification is grounded in God's mercy and the only ones who receive it are those who know they need it. The only ones who are saved are those who know they're drowning. The only ones who are rescued are those who know truly in their heart of hearts they are helpless and hopeless. As we always say, all you need to receive God's mercy is need. All you need is nothing, but now you see why most people don't have it. The parable asks a question, who does God vindicate? Then it answers, those who are humble before God and cry out for mercy are accepted. So simple. So free is divine grace because of Christ's death that God doesn't even require a long babbling prayer. All he requires is a humble and contrite heart that cries out, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's it. Have you done that? Have you cried out to God for mercy? Is it possible that you are trusting in your own righteousness? Some of you have never truly reckoned with the state of your heart before God. Some of you are trying to justify yourself by your goodness or morality. Some of you are trusting in your ability to be better than others by comparison. Some of you are very religious grew up in church, your mom and dad went to church, you know your Bible stories, you've served in various ministries, you, you've kept from what you perceive to be really bad sins, you're respected, you hang out with the right people, you avoid the wrong people, you're a nice fella or gal, you're generous, you're a good neighbor, you're sincere and friendly, but you have never truly cried out to God for mercy from the heart because you have trusted all that other stuff. You need to humble yourself and cry out to God for mercy if you are to be saved. Some of you think you're too sinful to come to Christ. You've done things that if people knew, you think they'd run the other way. You're not sure how God could want you. You're just too bad. Well, I am here to tell you that you're exactly who the gospel is for. Jesus' grace, mercy, and love is deeper than the deepest ocean and wider than the widest galaxy. This is salvation available to you, friend. Why is Jesus telling us this parable? Why do disciples need to hear this story? Why do you and I need to hear this story? Because we are prone to self-justification as a matter of being human. 
and because the essence of discipleship is faithful dependence on a gracious God. You do not graduate from the gospel, my friend. Not just at the start, not just at the, it's a posture of life to, to move from heart change out to deeds done truly for God, to kill sin, to fight temptation, to obey it all. We need not only beginning grace, but continuing grace. Let me share with you one more illustration, then we'll come to the Lord's table together. You guys remember um, when Christian and Hopeful were getting close to the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress, at one point they met a man, his name was Ignorance. Ignorance was nicely dressed, polished, well-mannered. He was confident and proud, boasting in a whole host of religious achievements. And Christian asked him, how do you suppose you'll get into the celestial city? And Ignorance says, I have lived a good life. I have repaid every man to whom I owe debt. I pray, I fast, I pay tithes, I give alms. Further, he says, I have a good heart. So Christian tells him, none of that will get you into the celestial city. And besides, the Bible says men's hearts are evil, to which ignorance puts his fist on his hip and says, I'll never believe that my heart is that bad. But the man is still so deceived that he believes he will get into the celestial city through his reputation and deeds, even if the Bible says differently. Ignorance even says he believes and trusts Christ, to which Christian says at one point, but how? How could you think that you must believe in Christ when you don't see your need for him? Well, Christian, fast forward to the end of the book, Christian gets to the celestial city, takes out a certificate showing that he has been justified by Christ to the person at the gate, and he goes right in. Ignorance gets to the celestial city about the same time. He goes up to the gate, he knocks, a man peers over and says, where do you come from and what is your desire? Ignorance says, I have eaten and drank in the presence of the king and he has taught in our streets. Then he asked him for a certificate so that he might go in and show it to the king. But Ignorance fumbles in his pocket and found none. Don't you have one, asked the man at the gate. Ignorance had no answer. So the king ordered him to be carried away and cast out. And this is what the narrator says. I realize that there is a way to hell even from the gate of heaven. Christian was exalted in the end because he was humble enough to cast himself on the mercy of Christ. Ignorance was humbled in the end because in life he exalted and trusted in himself. And which one will you be like in the end? Who are you more like in this moment out of these characters? Be honest now, okay? This is you dealing in your own heart. No need for pretense. Are you more like the Pharisee, prone to list all your accomplishments and morality and religious record? Or are you like the tax collector, contrite with a proper estimation of yourself before a holy and just God, knowing you need atonement to be provided for you? If you are to be saved in this life and the next, crying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I tell you, only one of those postures will bring you home justified.